Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Those are the lyrics to the, the first verse and the refrain of that great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. The hymn was written in 1759 by a guy by the name of Joseph Hart. And Joseph Hart took his inspiration for that hymn from the parable of the prodigal son. Because as he read it, he saw himself in the character of the prodigal. You see, Joseph Hart, before his conversion, had lived a pretty immoral life. And that is, at least until his conversion and his repentance, and once he actually turned around and, and came to Jesus, then he found the source of life and the source of love that he had been looking for. And I'm glad he did, because I'm of the opinion that that particular song really captures the essence of that parable, really more than any other song about it. Now, the parable of the prodigal son has certainly inspired many works of art throughout the centuries. Think of Rembrandt's, The Return of the Prodigal Son. If you don't know that painting, go Google it because it is a masterpiece and it is just beautiful. It's no surprise that the parable of the prodigal son has inspired works of art throughout the centuries because, well, that's what great works of art are supposed to do. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to inspire our imagination so that we might see things in a completely different light. You see, that's why Jesus actually told this particular story, because his purpose was to inspire his listeners to see him differently and to see the people that he was hanging out with differently and ultimately to see God differently. See, Jesus knew that they needed to see God in a whole new light, but he also knew that just simply giving an answer to a question, that wasn't going to be enough. He needed to inspire their imaginations. See, when our imaginations are inspired, we see things differently. But the purpose of an inspired imagination is not just simply an intellectual exercise. See, the one thing that every great artist knows is that the purpose of an inspired imagination is actually to inspire the heart. See, an inspired imagination leads to a changed mind, which would lead to a changed heart. And ultimately, it's meant to lead to a completely changed disposition. The theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. He says, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced back to an imperfect or ignoble thought about God. See, Jesus wanted to inspire his listeners, and he wants to inspire us to change our minds both about who he is and what his mission is. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. This morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son. It starts in verse 11. There is a whole lot that can be said about this parable. There's a whole lot that can be said. There is a whole lot that has been said about this parable throughout the ages. 
It's rich. It's deep. And so as I was reading through it this week, and I was, I was thinking about this morning and what it was that we needed to hear this morning, I was struck by what the parable teaches us about repentance, about repentance. And that's the main thing we're going to press into this morning, the idea of repentance. Because here we are, we're deep in the heart of Lent. We're deep in the heart of the season of Lent, and I'm convinced that we need to hear the message about repentance that this parable holds out for us. Because what I believe it shows is actually an example of what true repentance looks like. Now, the Greek word for repentance is this word metanoia, and it means literally to change one's mind, to literally change one's mind. But it has the larger implication that in changing your mind, it means changing your life. See, it's a complete turning away of one way of living and one way of seeing the world and turning towards another, better, more righteous way of living. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the parable of the prodigal son invites us to change our minds, not just about Jesus himself, but about repentance, to change our minds about repentance, because I believe it challenges our normal understanding of just what repentance involves, and I believe that it invites us to see it the way that Jesus sees it. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's dive in. And let's dive in, and let me start, let me say a word just about the context. Every time Jesus tells a parable, it's usually occasioned by some question or some kind of challenge. And that's exactly what's going on here. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 and verse 2 actually set the entire context. It says this, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus is eating with people who are sinners. Tax collectors, well, they were people who were viewed as traitors because they worked for the empire. They were viewed as thieves because they stole money from people by collecting more taxes than they were supposed to and pocketing the, the profits. Sinners, quote-unquote, were the people who really just lived lives contrary to the ways of God and contrary to the laws of God. They were engaged in all kinds of immorality, those were the people who were, quote, drawing near to Jesus, and those are the people that Jesus, are, Jesus is receiving. Jesus is welcoming them. He's showing them hospitality. He's befriending them. He's spending time with them. And yet, the Pharisees and the scribes, well, they had this view that God demands moral purity. And now that's actually right. They were right about that. God does demand moral purity. The problem was, was that they understood that to mean that it was wrong to even associate with these kind of people. And they were definitely making their displeasure known to Jesus. And so it's into that context that Jesus tries to redirect their imaginations. And he does so by actually telling three parables. Not just one, he tells three. The first parable that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep where a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one gets lost, and so he leaves the 99 and he goes and finds the one and brings it back. 
The next parable is about a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one of them, and so she searches the entire house until she finds the coin. And then we have the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, the son that, that, that takes his inheritance and goes out into a far country and he squanders it all the way. And then a famine hits and he's left with nothing and he's forced to work feeding pigs and he eventually comes to his senses and realizes the state that he's in and he decides to go home thinking, well, maybe his father just might be merciful enough to maybe just give him a job so that at least he won't starve. But what he finds is he finds a father that runs out and embraces him and kisses him and restores him to the status that he was before. All three of these stories are the answer, or Jesus' answer to the question of why he receives sinners and eats with them. And the reason that the Pharisees even had to ask this question is because their understanding of repentance, and specifically the results of repentance, were completely skewed. They couldn't see what the results of repentance actually looked like. And honestly, I think today we still kind of hold a, a skewed view of what the results are when a sinner repents, and sometimes it actually keeps us from truly repenting ourselves. So let's look at what the results are that this parable holds out for us of repentance. The first result is this, rejoicing. Repentance results in rejoicing. See, at the end of the first two parables, in verse 7, starting in verse 7, Jesus himself says this. He says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he pushes it again in verse 10. He says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then immediately following those statements, Jesus paints a picture of what this joy looks like when a sinner, characterized by the prodigal, repents. It's like a wayward son who returns home to a father who is ready to celebrate his return. Repentance results in rejoicing. And sometimes that's surprising to us. See, I think too often we think that repentance is going to result in some sort of judgment. That if we just turn around and, and return, that we're going to have to face the music. Sometimes we think it's just easier to stay in the pigsties that we find ourselves in because, you know what, we already know we're in a shameful place. Why must I go back and admit it to everyone so they can just continue to tell me that I'm in a shameful place? No, thank you. That's a misguided understanding of repentance. And I think if that's what we think about repentance, then I think we've actually forgotten the gospel. Because repentance doesn't result in judgment because our sins have already been judged by Christ on the cross. Repentance doesn't result in more shame because our shame has already been taken away by Christ and nailed to a cross. Why would we ever think that that's not enough? See, it's out of love that God sent his son not to condemn us, but to save us. Because he loves us. And we rejoice over that which we love. How much more is it with God? Now, I've preached on this in the past that so often we overlook the fact that Jesus loved to party. Jesus did. Jesus loved to party. If you read through the Gospels, you see that there are parties and feasts and banquets 
all through them. And Jesus is always showing up at them. In fact, his entire ministry is bookended. It starts with a marriage feast where he turns water into wine, and it ends with the marriage feast of the Lamb, where the final consummation of all things, where the bride and the bridegroom are joined together, that's Christ and his church, and there is praise, and there is singing, and there is rejoicing. It's easy to miss, but rejoicing is a characteristic of Jesus and his ministry. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us this. He says that it's because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Repentance leads to rejoicing, not to judgment, but to rejoicing in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful truth for us this morning? That leads to the second point. There is rejoicing, but it's not an individualistic or a private rejoicing. That's because repentance leads to reuniting. Repentance leads to reuniting, both with God and with others. Let's look at the second of those two points first. Chapter 15, verse 22. The father receives the son, and then he does this. He turns to his servants, and he says, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill us, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. And it says, and they began to celebrate. All of them began to celebrate. Jesus illustrates this also in the previous parables with the shepherd and the woman. Look at verse 6 and verse 9. When both the shepherd and the woman find exactly what they were looking for, they both say the exact same thing. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep or my coin. They call all of their neighbors and all of their friends and say, come and rejoice with me. The invitation is sent out to everyone to come together and rejoice because being together only multiplies the joy. joy, Only multiplies the joy. See, when we repent, God reunites us with the body of Christ. The lost sheep was reunited with the fold, the coin was reunited with the dowry, the son was reunited with the father's household, and we are reunited with the body of Christ, not so that they can judge us, but so that they can rejoice together with us. Repentance leads to reuniting. With others, yes, but that's only because we're first reunited with God. The crucial moment of the story of the lost son comes in verse 20 says this, and the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I think the order is important of that. See, what's going on is the son is still far off. And I think Jesus doesn't just mean physically distant. I think there's a deeper spiritual reality that he's getting at, that spiritually, he is far off. At least until the moment of embrace. Because I believe it's at the moment of the embrace that the Father receives him like Jesus receives the sinner and draws him close. It's at the moment of embrace that the Son is reunited with the Father. He's been far off. And now at the Father's initiative, he is wrapped in his Father's arms of love. Remember the song, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. I think what we're seeing here is that the embrace is what saves him. He's been far off. He's been 
dirty, stinky. He's, his clothes are torn. He's, he's starving. He's just a mere shadow of what he was before. And it's in that state that the lost son receives the saving embrace of his father. And from that moment on, all things change. Notice that it wasn't once he cleaned himself up that he was able to come into the Father's presence and receive the embrace of the Father. What I'm wanting to suggest to you this morning is that it's the embrace itself that makes him clean. Think of Isaiah 6. In the vision of Isaiah 6, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he states, I am a man of unclean lips. And then, uh, and then an angel takes a burning coal and it touches his mouth and it purifies his mouth. That's the picture of what happens when we receive God's divine embrace. See, the Pharisees in the story, they were working with an understanding that we can sometimes have. That sin can't come into the presence of God. We sometimes believe that sin can't come into the presence of a holy God. They were working with that, and that's why they were upset with Jesus, because they believed that if Jesus truly was the anointed one, then why is he hanging out with all of these sinful people? But what Jesus was trying to show them was this, that sin does not corrupt that which is holy. It is holiness that purifies sinfulness. It is coming into contact with that which is holy that purifies like a refiner's fire. If sin stayed away from a holy God, it would never be purified. And so that's why Jesus ate with sinners. That's why he receives sinners. He receives them because his presence purifies them and transforms them so that they might actually repent. First Peter says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And the shepherd doesn't wait for the sheep to become unlost before he goes and finds them. Repentance leads to reunion. Maybe I should rephrase that just a little bit. Repentance leads to the realization that God has already embraced us. And it's, his, and it's his kindness in doing so while we were still far off that leads us to repentance. So repentance leads to rejoicing. Repentance leads to reuniting. And thirdly, repentance leads to receiving. It leads to receiving. See, I think too often we think of repentance as something that we have to give. That when we repent, it's like we're trying to pay back something. But you see, in the text, the prodigal has literally squandered away everything. He has absolutely nothing to give. But he certainly receives. He certainly receives a lot of things. And in receiving, he learns that the character of his father is very different than he thought it was. You see... We see this in his statement, and it's important to notice what he was planning on saying to the father. It's important to notice what he actually said to the father, and it's important to notice what the father did not allow him to say. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. The prodigal realizes that he has sinned against God. He realizes he has sinned against his father. He acknowledges his unworthiness. And so he literally turns around, turns away from where he was. This is the beginning of his repentance. But at the beginning of his repentance, what's exposed is that 
he still thinks that he's going to need to make some kind of bargain with his father. And sometimes we think that way, that even if we repent, we still have to somehow do something to repay the debt. Give me a job. Let me work it off. But the father surprises him. The father actually hears the first part of his confession. He lets him say that, that he's sinned against him and sinned before God. But then he cuts him off just before he has a chance to say, treat me like one of your servants. And what happens next reveals the surprising character of the father that the son didn't realize. And it reveals the surprising character of God and of Jesus that the Pharisees couldn't see. See, every week during communion, we pray, we are not worthy so much to come to your table, merciful God, but you are the same God who always delights in showing mercy. This Lent, let us not forget that it is the nature of our God to always delight in showing mercy, because that's what we receive when we repent. We receive mercy. That's what the Son received. Now let's look at, real quickly at the the other things that the son received. The son received a robe. A robe is a symbol of honor. The father clothes him with honor. It covers his shame. It covers his uncleanliness. The father gives him a ring, which is a symbol of authority, not servitude. You see, the the son thought that at best he was going to be a slave or a servant, and instead the father restores his sonship. And finally, he receives shoes, which, is, which are symbols of freedom. You see, he can go anywhere in the Father's house because now he has received back access to all the rights and all the privileges of a son in the Father's house. He received back an identity that he had squandered away. The whole point of this entire parable is Jesus revealing his true nature and his true mission. Just like the shepherd, just like the woman, and just like the father. These are Christ figures. Just like them, Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost, not to reject them. Jesus has come to embrace us when we were deemed unembraceable. And by doing so, he remakes us, he transforms us, he purifies us, and he calls us to repentance. Friends, our repentance must be based upon this true identity of Jesus. Otherwise, we'll never repent. Repentance results in rejoicing, because Jesus is one who rejoices. Repentance results in reuniting in reunion, because Jesus is the one who has reunited us to the Father. In his very flesh, he incarnated himself and took our humanity up into his divinity and reunited us with God. Repentance results in receiving, because Jesus is the one who receives sinners, and in doing so, he gives them what they can never have and can never gain for themselves. So with that truth, I think it's only right to end where we began, with an invitation to come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, because Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power 
So arise, go to Jesus. He will embrace you in his arms, and it's in the arms of our dear Savior that there are 10,000 charms. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.